Hello, and welcome to a holiday special edition of The Energy Gang. I'm Ed Crooks. For this last show of 2023, we're going to be looking back at the year in energy. And in particular, we're going to be talking about the good news stories for this year. And for this episode of Festive Cheer, I'm joined by Amy Myers-Jeffy, who's the director of the Energy, Climate Justice and Sustainability Lab at New York University. Hi, Amy. How are you? I'm great, Ed. Good to be here. Feeling suitably cheerful, I hope. It's a great time to be cheerful where the whole family is getting together for Christmas and I'm just organizing the gifts. I just set key lime pies from Joe's Crab Shack because that is a family favorite. Ah, fantastic. Excellent. Perfect. Very much getting us in the holiday spirit. And also we're joined by Melissa Lott, who's the research director at Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy and also a professor at Columbia's Climate School. Hi, Melissa. How are you feeling? Hey, Ed, I'm doing great. I'm uh, back in Texas. It's sunny. I have like a gallon of iced tea next to me right now for the recording this morning because, you know, I'm in Austin and I've already had three rounds of tacos and I've been back for less than 48 hours. So I'm feeling really good about things. But I got to say, Amy, I, I think I'm an unofficial member of your family because key lime pie. Yeah, that winner, winner. Thanksgiving, I don't really get the pumpkin pie thing, I'll say, but I get key lime and pecan all day long. Let's do it. So it's fantastic. Excellent. I'm feeling bad now that we don't have more snacks organized for this recording. But anyway, so no, look, as I say, I want to talk about reasons to be cheerful from 2023, reasons for optimism. And if it's all right, I think I'm going to go first. We've all got ideas that we want to talk about. I think if it's all right with you, I'm going to talk first about mine because I think it sets the scene quite well for some of the other issues that we're going to be getting to later on in the show. And also, if it's all right with you, I'm going to start with a pop quiz, another festive holiday tradition, I think, the Christmas quiz. Certainly, this is always a big feature of this time of year in England. I'm going to ask you about solar costs. And what I want to know is, do you know what was the cost of a solar module produced in China in September 2023 in dollars and cents terms, dollars or cents per watt? What do you think that was? Low. I'm going to go with Low. <laughs> Can I do that thing they do on the game shows where I text my daughter who was a solar developer and ask her? Phone a friend. It's like a, who wants to be a millionaire. And then people, I hope, will be shouting at their phones. Listeners, listeners, help us out here. But I'm going to say that, Melissa, you were absolutely right to say it's low. And this is, I think, an amazingly low number because the answer is 15 cents. 15 cents per watt. Gosh. It's so low. Which is staggering, isn't it? And when you think, I mean, you know, my memory is long enough. I can remember 10 years ago when a dollar per watt for just the module cost was the goal. That was what everyone was aiming for. That was the thing that would look like a huge achievement for solar power to get to a dollar per watt. And now we're down to 15 cents per watt. And so, as I say, that's something which seems to me to be a real reason for optimism. It just shows you how incredibly competitive solar power is now. Obviously, cost of a module is not the same thing as the cost of a whole system, and there's all sorts of other issues, not least the cost of connecting to the grid, which can often be a real issue, and the cost of getting a system fitted to your home or whatever it might be. But even so, when you look at the future for solar power, it's incredibly bright still. It is going to be growing very rapidly around the world, it is going to be something that can be a really competitive option against fossil fuel power generation at many times. And there's lots of other interesting aspects of it, and perhaps we'll get into some of those in this discussion. But as I say, just that 
fact of how much the cost of solar power has fallen. It's down, I think, about 40% or so, even over the past year. Just showing that, you know, there's been a bit of talk about, oh, well, is the era of falling costs for clean energy, is that age over? Are we hitting supply chain issues, other kind of issues and barriers that mean that we can't keep driving down the cost of solar power? Well, no, apparently we can actually. That is still going on. That seems to be, as I say, real reason for optimism. No, I'll say, I mean, the numbers are just mind-blowing. It's interesting when I talk through stuff, like with my students in my class or even outside of my classroom with the different decision makers we engage with at the center and discussing about how take away the policy, take away incentives, take away tax breaks. This stuff is cheap. Like it deploys because it is exceptionally cheap. Now, the other things are they help accelerate the deployment. Sure. But this is not a without subsidies, this would not be deploying type of discussion or without, you know, some kind of tax credits, et cetera. These technologies are really, really cheap. And it's interesting. We've been talking all year, right, about supply chains, Ed, and who's positioned well to be in a good place in these supply chains. And I think in the case of solar, it's a real, real success story because I, yeah, I remember sunshot days and dollar watt and all this stuff. So it's just unbelievable where we are today. Absolutely unbelievable still to me. So, you know, one of my big insights this past fall was that I went to a few conferences, one in Oklahoma and one in Texas, in addition to my usual, you know, speaking at, you know, utility conventions and other things around the country. And the paradigm is that in the Oklahoma and Texas context, people are still putting up slide decks that show how expensive renewable energy is compared to natural gas. That's just really not true. And these numbers really show you the trend line. And it's it affects things like the future market for LNG in Asia. You've got India. Today, Japan, a Japanese company made an announcement saying it was uh, diverting its investments uh, in receiving LNG in favor of nuclear and renewables. So, you know, we really are seeing that LNG has priced itself out of the market in many, many places in Asia. And renewables are really, you know, overtaking the market. Big numbers out of uh, the annual end of the year for Germany today, too, for renewables. So I think the trend line is very clear. Yeah, and I think one of the things which is really interesting, obviously, there's the question of storage. Solar power does have its very obvious limitations, and it can't do everything that natural gas can do for generation. And I know we're going to come on to the question of storage later on in this show, and that's obviously an important part of backing up solar and increasing its suitability for a, a wider range of applications. But the thing that seems to be really interesting in China now is this use of coal to back up renewables, where renewables are the main form of generation, and wherever they're available, you use those. And then you have this newer generation of more flexible coal-fired power plants that are used to back up the renewables when solar and wind aren't generating. And that seems to be Obviously, it's not a complete solution. It doesn't get you to net zero that way, but it's certainly a way to control emissions. And there's now this idea there, which seems quite plausible to me, that actually Chinese emissions are going to peak in the next few years. And now there's this idea out there that Chinese greenhouse gas emissions are going to peak really very soon, perhaps in the next few years, in large part because of this huge growth in renewables that they're having. They're adding unbelievable quantities of renewable generation capacity. I think the number for this year, I mean, there's a few different numbers flying around. It like depends on exactly what you define as the capacity that they're adding. But 
our numbers at Wood Mackenzie, we have 230 gigawatts of wind and solar being added in China this year. That's more than the entire wind and solar generation capacity of the United States today. So in other words, that's an entire US of wind and solar being added in a single year by China. Numbers absolutely mind-blowing. Some people have even higher numbers than that for new solar power additions. So there's an immense amount of change going on. And if you're basically squeezing that coal-fired fleet and you've got a lot of coal-fired power plants, and in fact, you're building more, but you're not going to run those plants so often, that's the way you're going to bend that curve of emissions down. And that does look like that's the trajectory China's on. So very significant development, I think. Well, one of the interesting things about China's coal sector is, of course, they have tremendous overcapacity and they have this you know, weird policy now where they're doing capacity payments uh, so that these companies don't go bankrupt. So they're, they're running at very low. Every plant is running at very un- under underutilized rates. And then they're getting a subsidy from the Chinese government. But I think part of that is what you're saying is, you know, how we're, what's their solution to backup for renewables? And even in the United States, where there's been these sort of, you know, dire stories about the delays in offshore wind, overall this year, wind capacity is up because it's still been booming on land. Yeah. So I'll say overall, like when we look at the wind and solar numbers, I know there, what was it, back early in the year, there've been all these predictions that we might actually peak global, what is it, electricity sector emissions this year. This might be the year as we see renewables outpacing coal. And then as you say, around coal and around other fossil fuels, a shift in how we use that capacity. So we may have still capacity additions, but we're using them differently to back up renewables. So the overall capacity factors are lower. It will be very interesting to see what the final numbers come out at. Because as we talk about with the energy transition, the power sector really is leading and in a lot of ways needs to lead. So it will be fascinating to see how those numbers come out. No matter what though, really, really positive and encouraging news to see costs so low because it just simplifies the arguments. This isn't a, let's do good and install this stuff. It's, hey, it's good to install this stuff from a climate perspective, but actually economically, it just makes sense. True. Although then there is another issue which I worry about, and I'd be very interested in your thoughts on this, which is still the dominance of China in this supply chain for solar power. And if you look at our forecast and other forecasts for where China is going to be over the next few years, you still have China being absolutely dominant in the global supply chain for polysilicon and wafers and modules for solar power, something like an 80% market share over the next few years. And clearly, there's an issue there with, basically, this is something that China is very good at producing at low cost. That's why costs are falling. They've got to a very, very large scale. If you can produce more cheaply than anybody else in the world, you are going to dominate that market. And so, in a sense, it's not a surprise. And you could definitely argue, I think, that countries like the US that are putting up barriers to imports of modules from China are holding back their own solar power industries. I think if you look at the cost of that module, as I say, about 15 cents a watt or so produced in China, you're paying easily 50 cents plus per watt in the US because of all the tariffs and duties that are put on that when it's imported. And then also you've got incentives for domestic content of the US, which again, make it less economic to use imported products, more economic to use products manufactured in the US where costs are very significantly higher. How do we strike the right balance of that, do you think, is my question that 
given that great cost advantage that China's had, should the world just be saying, thanks very much, this is fantastic, we'll take all the cheap modules you can make, and we will use that to develop our own solar industries? Or should we be concerned about the fact that China can make all these very cheap modules and therefore flood the market and potentially suppress industries in other countries? So, Ed, I'm going to actually do one of those pivots, which you asked a certain question. I'm going to answer one related to it, which is, I think it's a really good thing we're paying more attention to our supply chains, period. And when we think about security, you know, we've talked about over the course of a year how diversification is so key in it. So having any one entity, country, et cetera, control 90% or 80% of any step in a supply chain gives pause. And it's not just because of geopolitical risks, any of that. Okay, what happens when two countries decide they're maybe not as friendly with each other as they were in the past? What happens if, you know, a facility goes down for a variety of reasons? What happens, just any little thing, a big natural disaster, you know, one thing, if it can interrupt your supply chain, that's not good. So diversification is key. And we talked about that with the 50th anniversary of the Airbowl embargo this year, et cetera. So I think for me, there's a really good news story in the fact that we're paying attention to our supply chains more than they were in the past and thinking about what they need to look like in terms of scale and also diversification when it comes to meeting net zero ambitions. When it comes to your direct question, I will answer it a little bit in terms of my thoughts. And Amy, I'm curious what your thoughts on this are. But overall, the impacts of different disruptions, shall we say, to supply chains are different when you're talking about a solar panel module or if you're talking about liquid fuels. And we know that. You know, if you say, okay, there's no gasoline or diesel or crude oil coming in from XYZ place, that has really quick impacts on the system. At the end of the day, if you change the supply chain for solar panels, it doesn't change the fact that you have solar panels that have a fuel source already installed. So, but we've we've been down that line a lot on the on the story. But I don't know, Amy, what do you think about my pivot to saying I'm glad we're paying more attention to supply chains in the first place? But let me just note that in the United States there was a delay in implementation of solar projects for a period of time because of the whole tariff uncertainty question and the stopping of imports for a while. But I do think we want to have diversified supply chains. And over time, you know, the question of competitiveness is one about competing for the export market, right? So if U.S. companies are unable to get their costs down or at least show that they have a superior product, uh, then they won't be effective in the global market. Uh, But that doesn't mean that we couldn't have policies to make sure that our manufacturing here Uh, works for the U.S. market. And, you know, same with Europe. So, and that doesn't really affect what happens in the global South in terms of where they're importing from. You know, India is trying to have its own industry. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out and what countries really can compete with China for low-cost manufacturing. It seems possible that as has happened in other industries, other industries will be able to step up to the plate now that it's clear that the market for solar is going to be expanding. So I'll say one more thing in addition to diversification that we should just put out there into the conversation is cheap solar panels at what expense? And specifically in my case at this moment, I'm thinking about human rights. And I'm thinking about the reports that we've had on human rights violations. And yes, we can produce things really, really cheaply, but there is a cost to that after a point. There's technological improvements, process improvements, all that, that drops cost. But then are we giving a fair wage? Are people being treated 
well, these types of things? Are they working in dangerous situations? This is really important that we are talking about that as well. It's not just about security. It's about human rights and all of these processes. Yeah, no, that is a really great point. And, and as you say, it's definitely something I should have mentioned in introducing the whole question of solar costs in China, because it's certainly a part of the story or a potential part of the story. Of course, it's worth thinking about the US now, which is taking quite uh, strong efforts to stop the import of panels using polysilicon made with forced labor. And they seem to be having some success in that. Those restrictions have been pretty onerous. And there has been quite a lot of work that has gone into making sure that the supply chain does not involve the use of forced labor. So as you say, it's definitely something to be borne in mind. It's definitely a concern. And it's something that needs further scrutiny, I agree. It's not necessarily, I don't think, still an insuperable barrier to widespread adoption of solar power in general, or the widespread use of these lower cost modules as well. So it seems like there are things you can do that will make sure that reasonable standards of labor, welfare, human rights in general are maintained in the supply chain. And so it's important that you do that. But as you say, that is not something that kind of wipes out that broader picture of generally positive developments in the solar industry. Yeah, don't disagree at all, Ed. Like the numbers we're seeing in terms of deployments and the potential we have, especially if we get some non-technical barriers out of the way when it comes to interconnection queues and approvals, dot, 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 long list there, is just a bit mind-blowing still to me when I think about it. It's not quite yet what we need for net zero ambitions, but it's close to on track. And that's a really, really good news story. And I will just say again, I think that we it's a good thing that we're paying attention to these supply chains. We're seeing these issues and we're grappling with them. And that's, you know, step one to resolving these problems in the supply chains. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's exactly right. So talk about China, I think is a good segue then into our second reason to be cheerful, which is Amy, something that you've got, because obviously China is a very important part of this story. Why don't you go ahead and talk about it? What is your reason for optimism based on what we've seen in 2023? Well, Ed, I taught the Clean Technologies Opportunities and Trends class this semester. And uh, a shout out to my students that each one had to do a survey of a particular clean tech sector and then make a stock recommendation. And so my uh, student, Renda, suggested that it was a good time to buy BYD stock, which is currently in a dip. And he pointed out that the stock is up 255% over the last five years. And I don't know if it's happened yet or it's about to happen, but BYD is about to overtake Tesla as the world's top seller of EVs. And so even with the dip we've seen in car buying in China, BYD still seeing rising sales. They sell one in every three new energy vehicles in China. They sell five out of the top 10 best-selling EV models in China, and they had a record income. And Renda also likes the Chinese newcomer Neo, and he had his top 10 list of EV companies' global sales. And uh, there were, besides BYD, three other big Chinese companies there, including Seik and Nagili. So, you know, despite what the naysayers say about how people with EVs are unhappy with their car and it's going to now you know, go in the opposite direction. The actual statistics don't actually bear that out. Global EV sales are look likely to hit 14 million in 2023. That's up over 35% from last year. 
14% of all new car sales this year were EVs. That's up from 5% in 2020. And the fact is, that's happening against the fact that consumers are basically paying 90% of the cost this year versus on average versus 80% in 2017, i.e. the government share of your car cost is uh, declining. So, you know, it looks like it's a thing that has momentum. Uh, and maybe that's why some people who, you know, want ICE engines to keep going are putting out this, you know, false information. But BYD, in fact, Stop making ICE combustion engine cars this year. So we're really seeing a trend. And, you know, you and I have discussed in the show in the past that car companies, you know, change their factory platforms. That's not something they do every year. Uh, that's something they do on a decadal basis. And so, you know, if you look at the stats, the seven big automakers, so that's VW, Ford, Toyota, GM, Stellantis, Mercedes, Nissan, have invested $55 billion in EV CapEx since 2019. So for people who are saying the EV thing is overblown, it's moving in the other way, people don't like them, you know, you know, me complaining about my charging stations, despite that, it's a happy story uh, in 2023. And indeed, just to emphasis, the U.S. government finally came out with its standards to receive federal funding for charging stations. And that is a new mandated requirement that a charging station provider has a 97% uptime on an annual basis. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think that's really fascinating, as you say, to compare, if you like, the discourse around EVs and so much of the commentary, which, as you say, has been very downbeat. And a lot of people, I think you've seen claims, for instance, that this is sort of the wave is breaking and that there's going to be a retreat away from EVs again. And the industry is going to go back to internal combustion engine cars in a big way. I just don't think I see that still, despite everything. I mean, it's true. There's some of the big car companies, they have set very ambitious targets for EV growth, which they're not going to meet. Some of their plans have been scaled back. But even so, for instance, just thinking about the US, if you take EV and plug-in hybrid vehicle sales last year was about 1 million this year, it'll be at 1.5 million or so. So growth of about 50%. Still, the market is expanding. The market share of these vehicles is growing. And when you look at China, there, you've got roughly one in four of all cars being sold is an EV. If you add in plug-in hybrids as well, I think by the end of the year, that share is going to get up to about 40% or so. That's a real revolution happening. That car market is being totally transformed. And it's really fascinating, disruptive change. And really interesting to hear you talk about those Chinese car companies. As in any period of disruption, you're seeing risers and fallers, winners and losers, new entrants emerging, old incumbents sometimes shrinking. It's been true for Tesla, which is obviously been created because of the EV revolution. Really interesting to see some of these big Chinese companies now becoming hugely successful thanks to it. So there is an enormous amount going on. It just does not feel like an industry that's about to go into reverse. Well, and let, let me just, you know, level that because, I mean, not only are half the EVs in the road are in China, but now it's not really a bad story elsewhere. One in five new cars sold in Europe are EVs, one in four in California. You're starting to see Thailand, Indonesia, India also becoming big markets. And, uh, 
you know, electric three-wheelers is a big vehicle market in India, and they're now 50% electric. So we're really seeing, I think, a trend line. And, you know, these negative stories, I mean, even for the Ford 150 electric, uh, sales were up in November. So even these stories about Ford, and I understand, you know, they've had their challenges in terms of their targets and so forth and the profitability of each vehicle. The bottom line is people are still buying them. And overall, I think going back to high level, we can talk about bumps from quarter to quarter or, you know, things that happen. But what is the trend? A lot more electric vehicles on the road overall. And I will say a good news story that I've been following, and I think we talked about earlier this year, Ed, is this announcement around charging standards and the fact that Ford and GM are both moving towards the North American charging standard. And so you talk about having these charging networks where, what did I tell y'all? When we decided, my partner and I decided to buy a Tesla at the end of the day, the ease of charging was a massive part of that. And so when you talk about making that ease of charging extend to a lot of other models, that is a really big deal. Just taking that stress point out, really big deal. Now, in the short term, may we see some headlines about, you know, a crunch at the charging network stations as more, you know, vehicles get access to them. Sure. But that's just a temporary situation, I think, because we will see more and more installations of more and more chargers that will work for an increasing percentage of the EV population that is out there. And that, to me, is a huge good news story, because when you're, like anything else, when you're developing multiple systems for, you know, filling up cars, can you imagine if you're like, Ford can only fill up at these gasoline stations, and, you know, um, GM can only fill up at these gasoline stations, that would be absolutely crazy and would have really impacted, we'll say, the operation of the internal combustion engine. It's the same thing with EVs. So I found this really, really exciting when I saw those announcements come out that that kind of stuff had been sorted. Don't know how y'all feel about it. Yeah, that's a great point. As you say, that is a really significant development. And it's very interesting when you look at other markets around the world, they're also standardizing. Europe is working towards its own charging standard and so on. So as you say, that just takes away a great chunk of the uncertainty and the kind of obstacle that a lot of people will face in terms of buying an EV, how do you charge it, what standards should I use, and so on. With all that being removed, that should definitely smooth the path, I think, to a lot of people making that leap, taking the plunge to own an EV. And let me just say, because I just you know saw the statistics, 80% of Americans are charging their EVs at home. And there's a misconception, I think, about you know what you need to be doing. So unless you're taking a long road trip, the charging station thing kind of goes away because realistically, people don't drive nearly as much as they think. And charging at home is more convenient than having to go to a gasoline station. I get your point. Completely understand it. Um, for folks like me, though, who don't have that as an option, just got to put that out there. Um, we won't get that option anytime soon. Well, for you, the Biden administration is targeting 500,000 new charging stations up from 140,000 currently. So we're going to get there. Indeed. And I certainly think that it's clear there will be bumps in the road, if you'll pardon the cliche, but you know, it's not all going to head inexorably up and up and up and up in terms of the adoption of EVs. And sometimes the EV market share will be higher and some days it'll be lower and so on. But in terms of where the ultimate destination is, I think that hasn't changed. And probably quite a few listeners to this will have heard our interview with Kristen Seaman, who is the head of sustainability at GM. She was talking about this and she was just saying, look, yes, there's various things that are going on in the market right now, but 
our long-term goals for this have not changed. We're still aiming for an all-electric light vehicle fleet by 2035. And as we've been saying, if that's the goal in 2035, that's not that far away in motor industry terms. You need to start planning for that now and you need to start investing and putting the systems in place and building the plants to get there. And so as they get onto that trajectory at GM and at other companies around the world, it's going to be very, very hard to shift away from that. And so this evolution of the vehicle industry towards EVs, towards being dominated by EVs, ultimately, that seems very, very hard to stop. I am still pretty confident, personally, that that is where we're going to end up. And like the solar story, Ed, this one comes back to economics for me, a lot of it. Uh, there's also consumer preference. I will say I like driving an EV. I think it's fun. And I think it's fun even though I'm not a huge driver. I should say it that way because some people just enjoy driving. I'm not one of them, but I, I find it fun. But also it's solid. The total cost of ownership is there. You know, the amount I'm paying for fuel for the travel I take. Now I have the luxury of being able to pay the upfront cost of that car. But this isn't, again, just um, someone who's got a lot of extra change in the bank sitting around able to, you know, buy this luxury item that's very, very expensive. These things are in that place where if you can get financing for it, it makes economic sense. If you can pay for it up front, it makes economic sense. And as we continue to develop these lower cost models, so not just the Model 3 for Tesla, you know, the, the smaller sedan, but other options around the world, this just makes sense if you have a power grid to back you up. It makes economic sense. And so that is a really strong push, whether it comes to fleets or individual purchases, to make this continue to be the trend. In addition to all the climate benefits, the air pollution, local air pollution benefits, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, just the economics of it seem to be a big driving force. Well, listen, you can, you can lease today a Nissan Aria electric vehicle for $199 a month. I mean, that's a pretty cheap lease. Right. So we are getting to the point where it's becoming cost competitive. And, you know, I also think it's sort of like indicative uh, the VC community, even with Trevor Milton of Nicola getting uh, getting this week his uh, four year jail sentence for a fraud. The VC investment sector is still pushing into the EV space, still pushing into charging stations. And so I think the money's not going to dry up either. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. So let's move on then maybe to our last reason for optimism from 2023. Melissa, what's yours? Yeah, so I will say, Ed and Amy, I had, and I'm sure y'all did too, a long list of reasons to be very practically in a grounded way optimistic in terms of clean energy deployment, next steps um, in climate mitigation more broadly, et cetera. So the one I want to zoom in on, and you both know I used to head the energy storage program at the International Energy Agency back when I was based in Western Europe. And so I follow the different technologies that are coming out and different milestones. And how many times have we discussed the whole eight hours, 12 hours is great, but we need to move towards longer than that and also moving well beyond batteries to seasonal storage things. But I am going to focus in on somewhere in the middle. So the kind of 100 hour uh, iron air battery announcements that came out this summer. So Ed, I think you and I have talked about this, but the announcements from Form, I think we're really exciting to say, you know, we're going to be building this manufacturing facility that's going to be actually taking a new technology that has the ability to bridge some of that 
gap when it comes to what renewables are able to do when we bring in firm dispatchable power like nuclear and geothermal and other things, you know, in the middle so that we keep the total system cost low. This announcement of their manufacturing facility was a really exciting one to me. And I'll say it gave me a lot of optimism for two main reasons, though there are more smaller reasons that add up. One is new technology advancing towards commercialization in a space where we need more options. And we need more options that pull from different types of materials that we may have easier access to. But the second thing is also the idea of the energy transition is about building a ton of stuff very quickly. And this was a step towards building a bunch of stuff. So not anywhere near the total scale we need for a global transition, but not a drop in the bucket. I mean, these are steps to say we are going to actually manufacture more of these things in facilities in the U.S. in this particular case. So that's mine. I'm throwing it out there. I'm curious y'all's thoughts. Yeah, totally agree with that. That was the thing, actually, I have to say, which really made me sit up and pay attention. There seem to be so many of these technologies for long duration storage that are out there and being talked about. And as we were just saying in our discussion of solar power earlier, Long duration storage is a technology that we really need, and we need to be able to do more to back up variable renewables and to replace dispatchable fossil fuel generation with, as you say, nuclear, geothermal, whatever it may be, but also certainly renewables plus storage is a big part of that. And again, as we said, lithium storage, short duration storage is okay for some purposes, but not for others. And so there's a huge need for this technology. Lots of people talking about different technological solutions that might be able to provide an answer to that problem. But a large amount of talk, a large amount of this looks good in the lab or in principle, we might be able to do this and so on, all that kind of stuff flying around. This is something really happening at commercial scale. This is Form Energy breaking ground on a factory. I think it's about three quarters of a billion dollars they're spending on this real plant to make these batteries in West Virginia, and it's going to be able to deploy them at a commercial scale. And there's been a steady flow of customers signing up for these things. It seems like certainly they are hoping that the cost will be significantly lower than for lithium ion batteries for storage. So again, it's one of these things where it's not just a market that's going to be reliant on subsidies and incentives. It's going to be a market that will be driven by favorable economics because people are going to want to buy these things as a low-cost solution to their problems. So just put all that together. I think it's very, very exciting and a very significant move from this past year. And the West Virginia aspect of it is another big one. I'm glad you mentioned that one, Ed, because this idea of how do we think about an equitable and just transition? How do we think about energy communities that were a big part of the buildup of the energy sector to date and what their role is moving forward? Like the Justice 40 conversation, dot, 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 a lot to cover there, but it's another really exciting part of this particular announcement. Yeah. Let me just say, hearkening to uh, shout out to my clean technology students, I have another student that did a big report on uh, hydrogen, which again can be a seasonal storage means. And there are, believe it or not, 25 different countries globally that have committed to a national hydrogen strategy, four or five of which involves an export strategy. And so, you know, we've seen the sort of hydrogen story come and go over the years, but this may wind up finally being the year that hydrogen really happens. And that, again, in my view, the two big applications are going to be seasonal storage and uh, industrial fuel. Absolutely. And as you say, 
a lot of activity going on there, a lot of interest, a lot of projects being announced, a few projects even really going into development and heading towards construction. So yeah, as you say, that's definitely another positive sign. On that form energy thing, though, just going back to that plant, I do think that's going to be a big thing when we start to look ahead to the year ahead. They're talking about, I think, first shipments out of that plant sometime next year. And as those batteries then do start rolling out off the production line and start getting deployed, that's going to be a huge thing to watch. And if they live up to all the promise that they have, if they deliver what they're meant to deliver, that is going to be absolutely massive. Well, I think it's really game changing, especially for particular places. You know, now New England is trying to connect to uh, hydro as a backup to renewables in places like Vermont. And Vermont is taking a sort of virtual power plant strategy. The utility there is actually leasing batteries to homeowners to serve as a kind of a backup system. But to the extent that states that aspire to have a very high percentage of renewables don't want to, green light pipelines for natural gas, uh, this long duration battery storage, you know, becomes a viable alternative. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see what markets this new technology moves into first and whether it blocks out coal or whether it blocks out natural gas peaking. Yeah, that is a great point. So I think we probably ought to leave it there. I think that's been a fantastic selection of reasons for optimism. We can all go off now to face the festivities in a much more festive spirit, I hope. So we're not doing free electrons in this show, but we have a secret Santa. This is Amy's idea. Do you know what? I've never actually done a secret Santa in my life. I'm still not sure if it works, but we are having an exchange of gifts. So I don't know who wants to go first, but I have something for you, Amy. Do you want to know what I've got? I'm going to unwrap it. And then you can tell everybody, the listeners what you've got. And you can see what I've got for you is an EV charger repair kit. Seems <laughs> to be like the thing that you have been very stressed by all year is this problem of so many times when you take your car to charge it up, charges are broken really annoying problem of the infrastructure not being reliable, not always being there when you need it. So something needs to happen. And I know this has become a political issue and the Biden administration is stepping in, but I sometimes feel you can't always rely on the government. Sometimes there's times when you just have to roll up your sleeves and do it yourself. And so, you know, I don't know what the kind of health and safety kind of regulations are. I'm sure we'll have OSHA on our case about you getting in there with your with your own kind of tools with your with your wrench and your screwdriver in order to fix these things but i just think that would be very very useful if you're able to mend an ev charger whenever you come across a broken one so that's my gift to you amy watch out for bees and frogs because we were doing this uh, episode for the big switch on ev repairs and apparently bees like to put beehives they make their hives inside of ev chargers when they have access so be careful in your endeavors <laughs> i'm going to put this kit in the back of my car ed and i specifically appreciate 
the extra portion of the gift that you got me that is the software instructions for how to uh, repair the coding for the software too, because that's going to be really helpful and useful for me. And so uh, I really appreciate it. What a wonderful gift. Well, indeed. I, I thought of you and I thought it was the only thing. So Amy, what did, so you got something for Melissa, right? Yeah, I'm Melissa's secret Santa. So Melissa, go ahead and open your gift. Oh my gosh. Hold on. It's in, it's in like a box. Let me, let me open this box. Okay, what am I looking at? (laughs) Melissa, Melissa, you should know what this is because you're an electricity expert. This is for your home in Austin, Texas. It is a whole home backup system equipped with solar, energy storage, a system controller, and of course, the backup switch to take you to that blissful state of island mode when the time comes. I'm still checking out your voltage and frequency, Drew, to make sure it fits with your house. Amy, I appreciate it, especially because we did have a very short blackout already, and I've only been back in Texas for 36 hours. I love my home state, don't get me wrong, but um, nobody loves a blackout, (laughs) so (laughs) I appreciate it. That is a great idea. Very, very thoughtful, very appropriate present, very much needed. So, Melissa, does this mean you've got something for me? Yes. Yes, I do, Ed. I am your secret Santa this year. And because I know you're not going to have enough to do over the holidays, why don't you go ahead and open up your gift? Okay, here we go. Well, thank you. So what is that? All right. So Ed, I know you're traveling. And so what you are looking at right now, shout out to Jesse Jenkins, is a fantastic board game. Um, have you ever heard of Power Grid before? Do you know what you're looking at right now? No, I haven't. I don't know this one. It's fun. I encourage you to write your own rules. We do that in my family. We write our own rules for board games. But uh, hold on. Let me see. If you flip it over, what it should be talking about on the back is as follows. Okay. The object of the game, to power as many cities as possible with your utility company, which you build from nothing in a network of coal, oil, garbage, nuclear, and green renewable power plants. You have to balance your budget on buying power plants and raw materials to fuel them, and the prices for each are subject to the actions of other players. If everyone one's buying coal, for example, the price of coal quickly rises. Anyway, I just think you'd get a kick out of it and you and your family could have some fun over the holidays. It does sound really cool. So to be clear, does it kind of come up to date? Do you get to design a net zero grid? Is that an option that you have? You can if you want. And you got to just work within your budget, power your city, make some trade-offs. And I guess in this case, you know, there's competition for resources because supply chains are not adequate for us all to have net zero grids today. I mean, it's pretty epic. (laughs) It does sound fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, we're always on the, the lookout for a good board game, particularly one that will lead to acrimonious shouting and, you know, uh, bitterness and recriminations within the family, which is the standard way we go with these things at Christmas. So this looks an excellent candidate for that. I know you're going to buy all the geothermals. (laughs) That's going to be your whole city. I know it now. Yeah. Well, uh, but also I feel like, so do you not feel that you constantly want to pick holes and argue with the rules and say, well, no, it wouldn't be like that. Or you think it's pretty convincing? No, 100%. There is not, to my knowledge, something in there that forces you to actually balance out to get the lower t- lowest total systems cost. So it's not optimizing across the seasons. I know, I know, the nerd in me just... Mm. But at least prices go up if everyone's buying coal to keep the lights on. As you say, great to write your own house rules then in the family to make it the kind of the perfect version. You can throw in a carbon tax and see if that changes the game. 
I very much encourage the writing your own rules. We always do this for board games, but they have to be written before the game starts. You cannot write them mid-game. Fantastic. Does sound really great. So, look, we do unfortunately have to leave it there. I'm sure you have presents to buy, parties to go to, so I will let you go and do that. But for now, many thanks, Amy. Thank you, Ed. Happy holidays. Many thanks, Melissa. Happy holidays, y'all. Look forward to chatting in the new year. And thanks to our producers, Sam Nash and Toby Bickens-Gilchrist. Thanks for being so much uh, fun to work with on this podcast and teaching me so much here on The Energy Gang during the course of the past year. It's been really great. Do have a great holiday and we'll see you next time. Thanks very much to everyone for listening as well. Thanks to all of you for listening through the year. I hope you all have a great holiday season as well. And we will see you again in 2024. Until then, goodbye.